For the past 10 weeks, we've been going through Paul's letter to Titus and, and looking at what it means to be a full-throttle church. And this is a church that, that's pumped up for Christ, a church that's active and involved, and, and a church that's just excited about worshiping, celebrating the, the family and just Christ alone. We've been looking at this, this full-throttle church, church running on all cylinders, church unified and, and working together as a team, Team Harvest, right? But what about people in the church who, who aren't full-throttle? Or maybe they're, they're full-throttle, they're just, they're just going in the completely opposite direction of the church. What do you do with the people who are, are dragging their feet, who are, are slowing down the sled of harvest? What do you do with these people who are, are disruptive and, and who fight and quarrel and debate and argue and, and just stir up controversy, get in, get in just problems? What do you do with these type of, of people who, who slow down the, the sled of, of team harvest? How do you handle dead weight, people holding back the church, people not, not helping but, but actually harming the church? What do you do? Titus chapter 3, let's look at verses 9 through 11. It says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Verse 10, as for a person who, who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As we're looking at this text, Paul's not messing around. He's not sugarcoating something that, uh, that's actually a terrible situation. He's not trying to make it seem a little bit better, a little bit sweeter than it really is. Paul is, is serious. And you can see the intensity of these verses. Of verse 9 starts with just warning these people. Just avoid these people. And verses 10 and 11 end up kicking these people out of the church. This is some increasing intensity. This, this is a serious issue here for, for Paul and for Titus on the island of Crete. Deadweight people. People who are slowing down the team. What do you do with these people? Well, verse 9 is all about conversations and talking, and it's all about, uh, it's all about this idea of, of communication. So verse 9, disruptive talkers. And then verses 10 and 11, talk about these, these lone ranger dividers. Here in verse 10, we see disruptive talkers. These are the, the people who like to just talk and argue and, and fight and, and bicker about controversies. They like to brag and talk about themselves. They, they just stir up trouble. They stir up problems. It's through their words that they just they bring about arguments and debates and fights. And you've got these lone ranger dividers. And, and these are the people who, who know what's true. They, they know what's right. They know what's wrong. But instead of listening to the truth and instead of doing what is right, they go off on their own direction. They go off and do their own thing and push against the church and slow down the church. They, they bring about division, verse 10 says. So what do you do with, with these people, these disruptive talkers and these, these lone ranger dividers, this, this dead weight in the church? People who aren't helping the team, but they're actually hurting the team. Here, as, as Paul is, is wrapping up his letter to Titus, this morning, we've got first a, a warning of, of how to interact with people who are these disruptive talkers. And then we have a command in verses 10 and 11, and, and what to do. How do we handle these, these people who are lone ranger dividers? 
So how do we interact? How do we handle these, these disruptive talkers? Verse 9, it says, but avoid. Avoid foolish controversies. Avoid genealogies. Avoid dissensions and avoid quarrels about the law. The text says at the beginning to avoid these kind of people. And, and the word here for avoid literally means to, to walk around or to, to walk away from, from, to shun these type of people. The images of maybe you're walking into church and, and you see this, this person at the donut table, you know, and, and they're, they're debating with somebody. Maybe you've talked to them before and they've just argued with you or, or they're bragging about themselves and they're just, they're hard to talk to. Avoid the donut table, right? Walk around, shun. Don't go over there. Don't get a cup of coffee. Avoid these kind of people. Walk around, walk away from. It says avoid four types of people. The first, people who talk about foolish controversies. People who like to to argue and, and debate and discuss stupid things. The word here for foolish, it's the same word we get our English word moron. It's saying avoid moron conversations. Avoid these these stupid arguments and debates. Avoid these things that are just time-wasting and pointless and really don't matter. They're meaningless. Here at Harvest, we have uh, things we call pen issues and, and other things we call pencil issues. Now, pen issues, these are the things that are fundamental to our faith, core doctrines of our belief, and, and we stand on these pen issues. Pen issues are, are things like the, the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, the literal heaven and hell, the inspiration of, of God's word and scripture. Another pen issue is, is the fact that we absolutely know Christ is coming back. But a pencil issue Now, this is something that the Bible discusses, and and there may be various views. So we know the pen issue is absolute return of Christ. He's coming back. But a pencil issue is is when. When is Christ coming back? The Bible has several verses, several chapters, several books discussing the return of of Christ and the the events associated with his return and uh, what it's going to be like. We know there's going to be seven years of tribulation when Christ returns, seven years of abomination and desolation. That's what Daniel says. We know from, from Matthew that Christ is coming back, and there's going to be seven years of, of trouble, seven years of tribulation. Also, 2 Thessalonians and Revelation 13, we know that Christ is coming back. That's the pen issue, but the pencil issue is, is when. It's not clear. We're not certain. It's, it's not black and white. We, we don't know the, the exact time of, of when Christ is returning. So as a church, we're, we're not going to get caught up with these pencil issues. The, the pen issue is we know Christ is coming back, and we've got to be ready every day for his return. But we're not going to waste our time in these, these conversations and these debates and these arguments and, and looking at these different verses and how do we interpret them and what do they mean and, and when is, we're not going to try to figure out when Christ is, is coming back. We don't know. There are different views of, of the rapture, of when people are caught up with, with Christ. Is it before the tribulation or is it in the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years, or is it after the seven years of, of tribulation? We don't know. But the point is, Christ is coming back, and so we're going to be ready for that pen issue, and we're not going to fight and quarrel 
yeah, there can be disagreement with the pencil issue, but it's not going to divide and separate us as a church. We're making these, these pen and these pencil issues two different things. One is fundamental, non-negotiable. There, there's no wiggle room in the pen issues. These are who we are. The pencil issues, there can be disagreements, and that's all right. Different opinions, that's okay. The Bible speaks to that, but we're not going to divide. We're not going to separate and ruin the church over pencil issues. But here in verse 9, Paul is, he's not talking about pen issues. He's probably not talking about pencil issues either. These issues are like crayon issues, right? These are just like stupid moron. Remember, moron conversations. These are just foolish controversies. These are the, the childish debates that, that people like to talk about and get into and just fight and bicker. It's not worth it. In seminary, I had to write a paper on, on whether or not snakes had legs before the fall. That's what you do in seminary, right? <laughs> so I'm writing this paper, and I'm researching, and I'm doing all this study, you know, looking at Genesis 3, and, and here in Genesis 3, the, the serpent, the snake, it, it, it deceived Adam and Eve, and, and they sinned, they, they fell. And so God comes and he calls out Adam and Eve and he confronts them and, and God places a judgment on Adam and Eve. And then God places a curse on the serpent and curses the serpent and says, from now on you will crawl on your belly and, and eat dust all the days of your life. And then if you look at these ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics and pictures, there's actually snakes with legs. Kind of creepy, huh? But this is stupid. I wasted so much time during seminary writing this, this ridiculous paper. And that's the point. Avoid these moron conversations, these, these foolish arguments. These, it doesn't matter. Avoid hypothetical questions. Here's one. Could God make a rock so big he couldn't move it? Why would he? What's the point? Stupid. It doesn't really matter. So when it comes to discussing the Bible... I think the, the idea here is avoid people who use their imagination, their, their speculation. Avoid these, these type of people who are creative in how they interpret and understand and apply scriptures. What does God's word say? What does it literally mean? You know, the book of Revelation we've talked about, there's, there's symbolism, there's, there's mystery, there's, there's metaphors and imagery. But the bottom line is Christ is coming back. Everything else, the things that are a little bit Let's admit unclear, pencil issues. Pen issues, Christ is coming back. Number two, avoid genealogies. Now, genealogy, the, the Bible's filled with genealogies, especially in the Old Testament. Genealogies were important because they would trace the, the family line. They were the, the family tree of, of generations. And, and so we can see uh, rights to land. We can see rights to the throne as, as the throne is passed from one descendant to the next. We can see different social classes. We can see the, the inheritance that the firstborn son would, would receive. In the Bible, genealogies are important. It helps us understand the, the family relationships and, and the, the generations of, of one family to the next. But in the time of the New Testament and, and later on, uh, as the church was being developed here in the, the book of Titus, the, the first century, these genealogies, they started to become misused, and they began to be distorted. And, and people would say in the church, you know, just because I descend from so-and-so, or just because my last name is this, I have the bloodline of that great-grandpa, I'm special in the church. 
and, and I should have more church leadership, and you should listen to me, and, and I should be a person of, of authority and prominence in the church. And, and people started misusing these genealogies to their own advantage. People started using these genealogies to talk about their, their pedigree, their, where they come from, who they are, what they've done, all that they have accomplished. And so the, the point is, is these genealogies, they, they were used, they were important in the Bible, but people, when they misused them, they used them to their own advantage. And they thought they were special, they thought they were more worthy than, than others because of who they are, where they come from, where they descend from. And, and these genealogies, when they were misused, they, they divided the church. They, they, they started fights and quarrels and, and, and made, made problems here for the early church. But the fact is that the church is made up of all social groups, all, all kinds of men and women, children, all races, all ages, people from all types of, of backgrounds and, and all types of, of walks of life. And, and God doesn't have a favorite type of person. God doesn't have a specific pedigree that, that he looks for. No, God, before God, we're all equal. And so here, as, as people were misusing their, their pedigrees, misusing where they come from, their, their privileges, misusing their, their family names, their backgrounds, causing trouble in the church. Avoid these kinds of people who are prideful, who, who boast and brag about something of themselves and not Christ. Avoid these type of people. Verse 3, avoid, or number 3, avoid dissensions. People can have disagreements, and, and people can have different opinions. Totally get it. But avoid dissensions on, on the things that really don't matter in life. See, there's the things that, that really matter, but there's also a lot of things that, that aren't as important, that don't matter. And so don't let the things that don't matter ruin the rest of the things that matter in life. On the pencil issues, on the, on the small talk, on the things that really aren't a big deal, don't be divisive. Don't be arguing and debating and, and go on into these meaningless conversations. And there's times it's just best to, to agree, to disagree, and to leave it at that and to move on. Being born in Colorado and still having family in Colorado, I am a Denver Broncos fan. My wife, however, she is a Colts fan. And so one month from today, December 13th, we have tickets to the Broncos and Colts game. I'll be wearing my blue number 30 touchdown Terrell Davis jersey. My wife, she'll be wearing her pink number 18 Peyton Manning jersey. We've talked about it. We, we don't agree we think there's going to be a different outcome to the game. But at the end of the day, when we return from Lucas Oil Stadium, really, what does it matter? What does it matter in our marriage and our family and who we are, the outcome of the game? You know, we could carry on for meaningless debates and fights and quarrels in the home and have division and separation, but it's not worth it. Totally not worth it. Tonight, however, we are both in favor of the Colts won't be rooting for the patriots, that's for sure. But on this whole idea of just the, the family, the, the church, just don't let there be dissension. Don't let there be things in life that really don't matter ruin the things that should matter. And lastly, Paul talks about avoid quarrels about the law. 
This word for quarrel, it's, it's an intense fight. It's, a, it's this heated controversy, this big conflict, but without weapons. It's about this verbal argument, this debating, this fighting. And a common question during the time of the New Testament is, is what does it take to be a Christian? What does it take to be a saved? Because in the Old Testament, there was Abraham, and he had to be circumcised, and, and Abraham was, was, a, was a Jew, and so do you have to be Jewish? How much of the Old Testament do you actually have to follow? Do you have to do all of those rules? If so, how much, how often, when? But then in Christ's coming in the first century, and, and Christ came and fulfilled the Old Testament law, well, now what do we do? Is it for Jews? Is it for Gentiles? Who can be saved? Do you have to be circumcised? Do you have to be uncircumcised? Well, what does it take to be saved? There were quarrels about the Old Testament law, and, and what does it mean for us today? What, what does it take to be saved? But this whole issue of, of what does it take to become a Christian, this, this, whole, this was the biggest controversy during the time in the New Testament. But this whole issue, it was already settled. We know from Acts 15, there was a Jerusalem council where the churches and, and the leaders of Jerusalem church, they met together and they discussed this very issue, what does it take to be saved? And at the end of the day, they decided, well, you don't have to be Jewish. You can be Gentile. You can, you can be anyone. You don't have to be circumcised. And, and you don't have to follow all of the Old Testament laws. The, the church decided that. But here on the island of Crete, they didn't get the memo. They didn't know that this issue, the biggest debate of the day, had already been settled. They didn't realize that this controversy, it's already been, it's already been handled in Acts 15. And in fact, Paul was there. And Paul, who was writing this letter to Titus, Titus was also there. Titus was a Gentile, he was uncircumcised, and he was a convert to Christianity. Paul and Titus were both there at the meeting, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. They knew what the discussion was. They knew the decision of what it meant to be a Christian and how to be saved. They knew it. But these, Corinthian, or the, these, uh, these people on the island of Crete, they were, they were still arguing. They were still fighting. They were still debating over what did it took. You see, their, their words were without truth. They were fighting over what they thought. They were inviting over what had been done in the past. They weren't coming to agreement with the truth of Scripture of what had already happened in Acts 15. They didn't know about it. And so they're quarreling and going on about the law, whole waste of time. The issue has already been settled. So the reason, the reason for avoiding these type of people, a reason for avoiding these disruptive talkers, the, the people who, who love to talk about foolish, moron, ridiculous conversations and, and genealogies and their, their background and, and who they are and, and their last name, the, the reason for avoiding people who cause dissensions and have meaningless debates, the reason for, for avoiding these people who fight about the Old Testament law, verse 9 says, these conversations, these things are unprofitable and worthless. In the context of this island of Crete, what's going on here, in, in verse 9, Paul warns these believers to avoid those type of people, avoid the false teachers of the day who are creating all these problems, who are stirring up these controversies, who are talking about genealogies and misusing them, these people who are arguing about the Old Testament See, in chapter 1, we see uh, these false teachers are all about promoting themselves and, and who they are and their myths and their, their philosophies and their opinions and what they think. And they're all about speculation and, and they're just, they're foolish. They are false teachers. 
Titus chapter 1, verse 11 says that these false teachers were, were ruining whole households by what they taught. They're all about themselves. They're all about this, this heresy that they were spreading among these people. And, and so these people, they, these false teachers, they, they weren't teaching Scripture. They weren't teaching the Word of God. They weren't teaching what really matters. They were teaching their their own agenda, their own thoughts, their own cute little stories, which at the end of the day are meaningless, are unprofitable. So here, what is profitable? What is meaningful? What has worth? The word of God. The truth that we find in God's scripture, his revealed word to us, that's where there's meaning, that's where there's profit, that's where there's value not our own ideas, speculations, imaginations. It's, it's what God has, has said to us. So the first person who brings harm to the church, this, this disruptive talker, verse 9 says, avoid these type of people because their conversations are unprofitable and worthless. The second person who brings harm to the church, and this is the lone ranger divider, verses 10 and 11, and it, it clearly says dismiss these type of people because they're willfully disobedient and they're self-condemned. Verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-condemned. For deadweight people who are stirring up division in the church, Three strikes, and you're out. Warn them once, warn them twice, three times, have nothing to do with them. Seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Seems serious, seems intense. What kind of a person is this? Well, this word describing the, the person who, who stirs up division, this word division, originally it just meant choice. You know, just like we have a, a choice in, in what college to go to or what career to pursue, what degree to get. In the times of the Bible, these people had a choice of who they wanted to follow as a teacher. And so some of the, the well-established, the, the skilled, the, the well-known teachers, they would have large groups of, of disciples following them. And so this, this, word, uh, this word divisive, this word which we get the word heretic, Originally, it simply just meant choice. You have a choice between two different people, a choice of, of two different teachers. But then as the times grew and there became more teachers and, and more schools of teaching and, and more groups to follow, this word divisive, this word heretic, took on a new, more specific meaning that actually meant that you would choose to not follow the truth of a teacher and you would choose to follow your own way your own thoughts. So here the picture is this person who knows what's right and wrong. They know the, the truth of a teacher. This divisive person is know, knows what is true, but instead of following what's right, instead of following what is true, they go off on their own. They do their own thing. They have their own ideals, their own agenda. They have their own beliefs, completely wrong. And they know that they're wrong, but that's the path that they've chosen. They've chosen to, to not follow the truth of the teacher. They've chosen to follow the truth of themselves, which is meaningless, worthless, unprofitable. So the, these people who are stirring up this division, the, the word where we get heretic, these people who are choosing not the truth of Scripture, but their 
own life, these people who are choosing this, this life of sin, this is serious. These are people who harm the church. They know the truth. They know what is right, but willingly and defiantly and deliberately go out on their own, doing their own thing. What do you do with a person like this? How do you handle somebody who, who deliberately knows the truth but resists it and repeatedly goes on their own? How do you handle somebody like this? Step one, it says, warn him once. Verse 10 says, warn him once. This idea of warning, we think of warning as just simply you didn't get caught, right? But this idea of warning has a broader meaning of you sit down with them and you go to them, you hunt them out and you teach them what is true. You remind them what is true. You help them, you counsel them, you sit with them, you listen to their opinion and then you correct them with the truth. Your goal is to help bring these people back to the truth, not out on their own. So step one, you warn them, you come alongside them, you help them, you try to bring them back. Step two, it says warn them again. Warn them once, warn them again. You, you do it again. You, you go alongside, you find that person again. They know the truth. You, you try to bring them back. You help them, you correct them, you teach them. You try to bring them back to the truth of the scripture because in their heart they know what's right and wrong even though they have willfully chosen what is wrong. But then step three, it says, dismiss them. It says, have nothing to do with them. For these people who are divisive in the church, these, these people who have chosen to follow their own path, who willingly and defiantly and deliberately chooses this path of sin, have nothing to do with them. Dismiss them from the church. Paul's saying kick them out. These people who know what's right, who knows what's right and wrong, but goes on an ongoing life-dominating problem of, of sin and, and keep going on their own direction and refuse to have help, dismiss them. It says kick them out. These lone rangers who, who have hard hearts, who want nothing to do with the truth of Scripture. This is not a person you want around in the church. Coming to, to terms of the implications of this verse, it's hard, of having nothing to do with such a person. But here in, in Paul's letter, his concern is not so much for the individual, because they have chosen this path. His concern is for the sanctity. It's for the unity of the church, for keeping the church together as a team. These people who are slowing down the sled, who are dragging their feet, who are causing problems and controversies, Man, they are tearing, ruining the church. Be careful with these people. Warn them once, warn them twice, dismiss them, kick them out. This is a, a serious issue, intense issue for the Apostle Paul. As a church harvest, we're just one and a half years old. We're a baby church. We're just, just beginning. And we're blessed because we don't have this, this long history of problems, of fights, of divisions and, and, and quarrels. And, and we haven't had bickering and splits in the church. We're blessed, but we're young. We're just beginning. And, and right now, as we're forming the foundation of, of who we are as a church, who we are as harvest, be careful. This text clearly shows the severity of what can happen when there's division and problems with people in the church. We don't want to be a church that becomes divided, a church that becomes split. If you've ever been a part of a church that's had dissension, 
if, if you've ever been a part of a church where that's that split or you've seen there's just there's been problems and controversies, you know how damaging this can be. You know how serious of an issue this is. So I think for us as a church, one and a half years old, Team Harvest, us as a church, I think there's four things that we specifically need to be careful of, things that can slow down our sled, things that can divide our church and bring up problems. First one is, is these pencil issues. And I've already talked a little bit about pencil issues, and, and yeah, there can be differences, there can be different opinions, and, and there can be things that, that we disagree on. But these pencil issues, these things that are not foundational to our faith, they cannot be things that divide us as a church. We can't get caught up in these, these secondary issues which, which aren't central to the gospel and let that distract us from what our goal, what our purpose as a church is to be. We can't let these, these time-wasting, these, these meaningless, these arguments, these, these controversies distract us from, from a church. But the sad thing is most churches really don't split over pencil issues. Most churches don't, don't divide over biblical or, or theological arguments and disagreements. A lot of churches split over policy issues. And, and what is a church going to do for my kids? Or what style of music are we going to have? Is it going to be contemporary or is it going to be traditional? Or what kind of small groups or what kind of ministries, what kind do you do for men's ministry and women's ministry? And what kind of a food pantry do you have? Or what do you do for sports ministry? And the list can go on and on. And those are all good things, but they can't be things that get in our way as, as obstacles to, to who we are as our church. They can't be things that, that divide us or, or don't let us become committed to the church. We can't be looking at just what we want from the church, but what can we give back to the church? How can we help not harm the church of Christ? So we've got pencil issues. We've got policy issues. We also have power issues. When the staff or the leaders maybe the pastors, the elders, the, the deacons, when there's power struggles, when there's jockeying for positions and, and arguments about who's who and what's going to do what, when, when there's these, these problems of, of power in the church, the church suffers. The church can be torn apart when the leaders of a church are not committed to the same mission, the same vision, the same purpose, direction. The whole church suffers when there's struggles with the power and the leaders of the church. Not a pretty thing. Divisions in the church can be these pencil issues. They can be the, the policy issues or, or even the power issues. But a lot of times, division in the church starts with personal issues. And you've got personality conflicts with somebody. You, you've got so-and-so doesn't like so-and-so, and, and they don't talk to me, and, and they looked at me funny, and, and they talk weird, they dress different, and, and they're just different. And I, list goes on and on of these, these personality conflicts, these personal differences. But again, in the, in the scheme of the whole church, these are so meaningless, so doesn't matter. In the view of the church, which is called to the, the great commission of going to all the nations with the gospel, in the view of the church, which is called to the great commandment of loving God and loving others, these personality conflicts, what a waste of time. Not worth it. Not worth division on the church between differences of, of people. We're all different. We're all people. 
Paul and Titus, they, they knew the severity of, of what can happen when a church becomes divided and split. They knew the severity and the seriousness of what happens when there's divisions in the church. They were there. They were at Acts 15 in Jerusalem. They saw the near separation of the Jerusalem church. Just imagine if the Jerusalem church would have split, what would that have been like for the rest of the New Testament? It would have been a catastrophe. They were there. They saw the near separation. They know the severity of, of problems in the church. But also, before Titus, our man Titus, before Titus was on the island of Crete, he was in the city of Corinth. See, Paul was, was busy. Paul was with the city of Ephesus, where we have the book of Ephesians. Paul's with Ephesus. He was committed to that church. But the church of Corinth, another church plant, had problems. And so Paul sent Titus. Paul sent his co-worker Titus to the church of Corinth. And you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, a lot of problems in that church. A lot of divisions in that church. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to a couple of the problems throughout the book that these uh, Corinthians had. Chapters 1 and 2, the gospel message was divided. Chapter 3, the ministry leaders of the church were divided. Chapter 5, the church was divided, and so they did not handle sin. They didn't do church discipline. Chapter 6, the church was divided, so they actually had lawsuits among its own believers. Chapter 7, there was division between the relationships of the married, unmarried, divorced, and, and remarried. There was division in gray areas and how to handle these questionable issues, chapter 8. There was even division during the time of worship, chapter 11. And there was division in how to do the Lord's Supper, how to celebrate communion, chapter 11 again. There was division between the spiritual gifts and who gets what gifts and what gifts are better, chapters 12, 13, and 14. There were serious problems. There were a lot of divisions in the Corinthian church. And a divided church equals problems. It's so clear from 1 Corinthians all the problems this church was plagued with and struggled through. And I've got to think as Paul is writing this letter to Titus, both of these guys who were at the Jerusalem church, who have been at the church in Corinth, both of these guys have seen the seriousness of what happens to a divided church. Both of these guys have, have experienced the problems. They know what happens to a divided church. So I've got to think as Paul is, is writing this to Titus and as Titus is reading this in the back of his mind, he's thinking, oh, that church of Corinth, so messed up. When they were divided, so many problems. So many controversies, so many disagreements, so many factions, and, and so much harm going on in the church. Well, keep your finger in 1 Corinthians, and, and this morning we're going to prepare our hearts for communion, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. To have communion here at Harvest, uh, we don't believe that you have to be a member you're a visitor, we welcome you to join us in communion. We just ask that you are a follower of Christ, someone who is born again, saved by the Spirit of God. So this morning, as, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and take communion, we invite you to, to join with us. But we're going to look a little bit more at 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look a little bit at the, the problems of this church during its time when it celebrated communion. So often, we can celebrate communion 
very private and, and very personal, and, and we get very quiet and solemn. Communion can be very secluded from, from other people, and we just kind of become all about myself, and we shut down and we shut off from, from others. But that's what the problem was for the church of Corinth. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Usually when we celebrate communion, we, we, we focus, we emphasize on the verses just following communion. This idea of, of celebrating communion and we should not eat the, the cup or the, uh, the, the bread of Christ in an unworthy manner. In verse 28, and, and we should examine ourselves before we celebrate communion. And usually I think because of these two verses, verse 27 and 28, right after the Lord's Supper, I think usually this causes the atmosphere of the church, this causes us as a congregation to, to not take human communion in an unworthy manner and to examine ourselves and, and to be very personal, very quiet, very solemn, and, and to kind of shut down and close our eyes and just, it's just kind of me and God and that's all it is, just me and God. But that's what the problem was for the Corinthian church. That's what was going on. And, and I think so often we, we emphasize the verses after communion, but what about the verses just before communion? What about the, the verses immediately before the Lord's Supper? Look at verse 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, these are the instructions of communion, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Here's the reason, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. See, when the Corinthians, when they gathered together as a church, when they gathered together to celebrate communion, well, they didn't have a church. They didn't have a building. And so what they did was they would meet in one of the wealthy owners of the church. They would meet in his house. And we know from archaeology, we know from history that most of the houses in the city of Corinth, these, these large houses which were able to occupy the, the people of the church, a lot of these large houses, they would have one center, one main big room. And then off to the side of that center room, there were small side rooms. And we know there's also a courtyard outside. And so it was up to the owner of that house to decide when people showed up to church, when people showed up for communion, it was up to the owner of the house to decide where people go. Some people stay in the main big room. Some people go to the smaller side rooms. Some people are, are stuck outside in the courtyard. So it was up to the owner as he opened up his house and celebrated communion and had church. And when they met together, it was up to the owner to decide where people will go. But that was the problem. The problem was there was divisions in the church. People were split up. People were split up in the main room and side rooms and courtyard. And usually what happened was the, the wealthy owner who owned the house, he decided where people went and his buddies, his friends, the other wealthy people of the church, they got to join him in the main room. The people who were popular and pretty, the people who, who had it together, the people that, who were elite and excellent, these people got together in the main room. The average, the ordinary, and everybody else, you know, you kind of make it to the side rooms and, and follow in, and the have-nots or maybe the slaves, the, the people who, who weren't a part of the inner circle, they were stuck out in the courtyard. 
So in these early churches and these early houses, there was division among the church. Paul says, when you got together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse, because you are demonstrating the the exclusion, the separating of, of you and other people, usually based on society or social economic, uh, how much people are making. I mean, their, their money usually devoted on uh, just where people are at and their influence, their ability in the church. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or, you just, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. See, in these house churches, communion was a meal. It was a full-out feast, a celebration. And because the wealthy owner opened up his house and provided this meal for others, he was able to decide where people went. But the problem was, not only they didn't, go all to the same room. They were split up in different rooms. But the problem was they didn't share it together. They didn't eat together. Verse 21 says, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So what's going on is the the problem of these people are coming here to church, coming to meet together, coming for the Lord's Supper. But the problem was the church of Corinth was made up of all kinds of social classes, had the wealthy and the rich, and, and these people were able to come early. And these people came right in as friends of the wealthy owner of the house, and they came right into the main room, and, and they started eating. They started drinking. Kind of the average, ordinary, everybody else, they, they kind of showed up a little bit later. Maybe they're working a little bit longer. They showed up, and they're now stuck in the side rooms. Meal wasn't quite as hot, but at least they got something to eat. But then this last group of people, these maybe slaves, the, the people working the third shift, these, these people working longer hours, the people who have nothing, these people showed up late, several hours late, and there was nothing left. There was no food. And so they were humiliated. These people who, who have nothing are humiliated. The rich, the, the, they go on fat and happy. But these, these slaves, these peasants, these poor people who are stuck out in the courtyard, these people who are part of the church, they don't get the meal. They don't even get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. They don't get to eat together with the body of Christ. So it's humiliating for, for some. For some, they were just showing off. I mean, they're, they're rich, they're fat, they're happy. Here in the middle room, they're all together. It's the elite. But it was so many divisions, not just divisions in the room, but divisions on not eating together, not celebrating the Lord's Supper as a family, as a church. I think so often when we take communion as a church, we focus on the verses after communion and we examine ourselves and, and make sure we don't take communion in an unworthy manner. Well, I think the unworthy manner that Paul's talking about is church division. I think Paul is saying when you get together, when you meet together as a church, yes, examine yourself. But also as a church family, communion, meeting together in church is all about otherness. It's about being together as a family. So this morning, as we take communion, we're going to do it a little bit different. We have the people who are helping with communion, and we have the worship leaders who are going to lead us through some songs as we prepare our hearts for communion. But as we take communion this morning, 
we're going to do a little bit different. We want this, this atmosphere, this environment as the church to, to not just be about me and, and myself and, and to not just kind of be secluded and closed off. And, and yes, examine yourself. And yes, make sure you don't take communion in an unworthy manner. But also, what about others? What about the, the otherness, the togetherness? What about everybody else in the church? This morning as we take communion, we, we don't want to make it so individual and so personal that we lose the reality of our corporate church body, the body of Christ, which that is the reason we're meeting together this day. So as we take communion, not only are we going to celebrate and remember Christ's death on the cross, we're also going to celebrate Team Harvest. We're going to remember it's us as a family, as a team, not individuals. So this morning as we take communion, it's, it's about recognizing others, celebrating the unity of the church, not the divisions of the church, the unity of the church. So we'll just have everybody stand. As the worship team begins singing, we're just going to have everybody stand. It's not just about you and yourself as an individual, it's about the church. So I encourage you, look around, look around the church. Don't be so straightforward and blinded to everybody else. We're a church. We're a family. We're a lot of people. And this is really awesome. So as you come down and you're ready to, to take communion, it doesn't have to be quiet. You can say hi to somebody. You can meet somebody. You can encourage somebody else. We're going to be, as a church family, all taking together at the end of worship. But as we're preparing our hearts, as we're getting ready, it's not about ourselves, it's about others. That's where we're at, and that's what we're going to do today.